at about 52 kilometers into the race, I was herring down this quite big slope, vertiginous slope, and managed to catch a sort of a tree trunk, trunk standing out of the ground. And it went flying, you know, and sort of landed on my right shoulder. And then, of course, I stood up, knew something was wrong. And then I could, I put my hand to where my shoulder was and couldn't actually feel that I, the oh, shoulder. Oh, oh, no. So, of course, the, the whole shoulder had popped right out and my arm was sort of right back behind my back. Like, oh. I think I've got a bit of an injury here. Welcome to the Gotta Run Racing Podcast with your hosts, Norman and Jody. Discover the inspiring stories of the average and not-so-average runners. And they're off. Hey, everyone. We're back with another Gotta Run Racing episode. Well, let's get right to it. Who do we have on the show today, you ask? Yeah, who do we have on the show today? We have David Ross, who's a originally from Zimbabwe, living in Surrey, UK. And what a resume this man has. I don't know where to begin with this guy. I, I, we can literally talk to him for a month, but let's just break it down to an hour. Yeah, we did have to refine the list a little, so hopefully we've picked the right things to talk about. But in just over 19 years of running, He's completed over 133 ultra marathons, 158 trail marathons, and 170 road marathons, which averages to about two races a month. In the last 20 years. In the last 20 years. Right. He's also a race director of Hermes Running Race Series in Surrey and Kent. And he's got a couple of goals that we're going to chat about today. Well, he's also on the list of the world ultra running marathon list that he has over 100 the most races yeah. yeah he's what over 100 ultras over 100 marathons over 100 trail marathons, marathons. yeah and you get on this amazing list that's right <laughs> so he's uh not stopping no nope. he wants to get to the one big level <laughs> well let's get to it here's david ross Nice to finally meet you. Yeah. yeah, same with you. Well, let's get started. For our listeners, if they listen to our episode with Paul Reeder, they'll remember how we were introduced to you in the fact that you had both agreed to sign up for a race in Oregon, I believe, called Mountain Lakes. Mountain Lakes, and yeah. <laughs> he signed up and you didn't. Is that how the story well, goes? all got it slightly twisted there because what it was i was running the marrakesh marathon at the time okay and that was on the sunday i think that he signed up because it's, it's always um on the at the end of uh, january and that's when the lottery opened for the mountain lakes 100 so it was on the same day as i was actually running the marrakesh marathon okay so, then I, I came on on monday morning first thing and i thought oh i better sign up now because obviously you think oh you know you, you've got plenty of time you know it wasn't like Western States or Leadville or one of these iconic, you know, really big marathon, 100-milers. So anyway, um, of course, when I got to, to try and sign up, they, they'd closed the entry portal. And I said wow. to Paul, I can't get in now. So, so, you're <laughs> yeah, going on your own date. You know? <laughs> but couldn't you sign up while you're doing your marathon with your phone as yeah, you're yeah. running? Take a little iPad while you're running the marathon. Yeah, could have done. I mean, that looking back in hindsight, we should have had a unanimous agreement that we should have just signed up for one another, whoever's first on the button. There you go. Well, we that... got to run. But hey, it wasn't to be. So. Well, that just proves there's three sides to every story, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but are you going to try to get back to that mountain rate 
race i'd love to but i basically long story short I, i'm going to see a consultant orthopedic surgeon on wednesday in uh, chelsea because i really want two unicompartmental knee replacements which i definitely need i've got osteoarthritis in both the knees because mm. i've i was born with sort of various legs Oh, which is okay. bone legs and the medial side of both my knees is completely worn down so it's bone <laughs> on bone mm. i'm in huge pain even walking these days so i can still mm. run a marathon if i really want to but 100 milers of course are pretty much probably will be a thing of the past mm. you know? oh, that's too bad truly which well, is that's... agonizing for me you know having I, I run 25 i can't imagine i can't imagine uh, you know. <laughs> Well, I have a question about those seven or six consultations. Did any of those doctors tell you to stop running altogether? Pretty much all of them. There's only one guy who said you could carry on running afterwards, and that was a guy called Dr. Kevin Stone in San Francisco. Mm. I had a sort of um, Skype call with um, Dr. Stone, mm -hmm. and he performed a miracle on a guy called Richard Donovan, who happens to be the race director of the Antarctica Marathon. Mm. Okay. I've been in touch with Richard on a regular basis because he's sort of nothing short of inspirational. He ran across America last year, following wow. the footsteps of people like Pete Kostelnik, who's obviously the course record holder for the for the Ram. Yeah. And um, basically, um, you know, Richard had both his knees operated on by Dr. Stone, two consecutive operations over the space of two years. Mm -hmm. and successfully went on to run across the USA, as you do when you've just had two knee, new knee replacements. <laughs> well, they're <laughs> brand new. Really not? happy to run for the bus, but he wants to run across America, you know, <laughs> but, uh, as mad boy as he is. But what an inspiration. So I guess there uh, there is light at the end of the tunnel. And if anyone is going sort of out there and has had similar experiences, I would really love to hear about those at some point or another, you know. So, yeah. Uh, we all love running and that's why we do what we do don't we but yes. you know we can carry exactly on oh it would be like winning the lottery for me well yeah. if it's any consolation we've chatted with a few people that have had that conversation with various doctors about you really should stop running and and they didn't listen and they they persevered and they did what they needed to do to recoup and they're still running so you yeah. know every case is different obviously but mm. You don't want to hear that. No, you need to stop running because you might as well stop breathing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Well, it's about as important for us as runners. Exactly. Take every breath, isn't it? I mean, after all, what would we do? Sit at the bar and drink beer after beer or something? <laughs> Turn into professional belly dancers. <laughs> well, let's go back to the very beginning, which really, considering the amount of races you've raced, uh, is it really that long ago, 19, 20 years ago? When and why did you start running, David? I think I had a bit of a cathartic exorcism when I had a bike accident when I was 18 years old on my way to school. So I was sort of like, I, I, I didn't really do much in the way of sport at school. I mean, I was pretty good, but not anyone special. And, uh, you know, that sort of like shook me up a bit because I did three somersaults over the back of the car and landed on my coccyx. Oh, he went into the side of the car. So I was lucky I didn't hit the actual strut going down at the back of the car. Mm -hmm. Had to write my final matric exams that day, which was actually in Afrikaans because I was educated in South Africa, which I <laughs> don't know how, but I went to home and got some whiskey and then went to the exam room and put my leg up on a chair, <laughs> wrote the exam and managed to pass. I don't know how. <laughs> and uh, 
but that sort of i suppose that could have been something to do with sort of wanting to start running plus the fact that my dad who sadly passed away in october last year mm. was always my inspiration for, for getting out early in the morning because i was brought up sort of in zimbabwe and then we moved over to durban and south africa we used to run in the morning dad and i in the sugarcane as the sun, African sun was rising, you know, just picture that, you know, I mean, you know what the beautiful sunrises are that you get all over the world. And there's just nothing more enthusing than watch that sun coming up in the morning and your dad taking you out for a run. <laughs> so I still got fond memories of that. And um, it's always been something that sort of gives you the ultimate freedom, I think. And I think it becomes almost a religion to us, really. You know, mm. yep. it's very cathartic. It's yeah. like our form of yoga, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So that gets taken away from you. You've got a, a sort of really bitter pill to swallow. So <laughs> you've got to reinvent yourself. So uh, that's the hard part. It's all a six inches game, isn't it? Yes, yeah. you're right. Behind, between the ears. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so when did you start getting into ultra running specifically? I did my first marathon in 1999. And I couldn't walk for about a week afterwards. It took me about right. four hours, 30 minutes or something to do this marathon. I thought, gee, why do people do this for fun? You know, this is, <laughs> this is crazy. So it, it was quite a while afterwards. It was probably about three years later that I did my first ultra, which is about a sort of a 50K, if you mm -hmm. can call that an ultra a little bit. But it was still quite a tough off-road one. And, and I said, really did enjoy the experience. And then I started running Comrades, which is obviously mm -hmm. the most iconic ultramarathon, one of the most iconic ultramarathons in the world. Mm -hmm. And hopefully you'll get to do it one day. Yeah. <laughs> because it is such a beautiful race. And I, I was the ambassador for the UK for five years and loved it passionately. <laughs> uh, that's 15, 15 Comrades. And that sort of got historical background, as you probably know. Mm -hmm. you know sort of brought about by Vic Clapham in 1921 and um, became a sort of a legendary you know, footmark for those that had fallen during the Great War. So right. they, one year they had the uprun and the next they had the downrun. And um, as people all over the world will tell you that have done Comrades, it is one of those most special races right up there with Western States and oh, YouTube. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, some of these epic races that we, we love to run. Well, we'll get yeah. there. We'll get to comrades but oh you because, have to because we have such a you know, it's, such a... Short. it's only 56 miles just only <laughs> <laughs> just over a double marathon you, know. you could do that Peace in your cake. sleep both of you holding hands running backwards <laughs> we will talk about comrades uh with a bunch of others that you've done yeah. but because you've done so many we had to really handpick what really sparked our interest okay let's first talk about the berlin wall race Okay. Miler. Yeah. Th that was, is it a race or is it more of a historical track or is it because you pay tribute to everything, the history of it all? Tell us about this race, the Berlin Wall race. Uh, the Berlin 100 Miler is an epic race because basically they set that up to commemorate those that had actually lost their lives before the wall came down. Mm -hmm. And it's a very flat foot race and it's all basically on tarmac. So mm -hmm. it's actually a very fast 100 Miler. And it's probably one of the most well-organized 100 milers I've ever done, mm. hand on heart. You know, absolutely wow. amazingly organized. The checkpoints are, are fantastic and very well supported. Great marshals, loads to eat. 
you can't get lost on that. Even I can't get lost. <laughs> I'm very good at getting lost at 100 milers. You know? <laughs> so um, that was quite a, a good one to do, actually. And I did pretty well at that. It was seventh overall, actually, and uh, did quite well at that particular one. Finished in about 16 hours, 59 minutes. Wow. That's but, quick. Um, it is it is a flat race. It's not like running Western or Leadville or Wasatch or one of these much tougher hundreds that we obviously know about in the US. And um, yeah, and then obviously the, the history about it is mm-hmm. every year they actually commemorate one life, someone that's passed. Oh, wow. And they have that person's picture up at the race. Wow. And so it's very moving, actually. Definitely one for the bucket list. Yeah. And how much of the course goes along where the Berlin Wall existed? Quite a bit of it. Okay. But obviously, there's only really Checkpoint Charlie that you get to see where the actual Berlin Wall is because the rest has been ripped down, really. Right. Mm-hmm. So you not you do run a, a actual down the actual Berlin Wall for quite some time, hmm. where the former site of the Berlin Wall was. Wow. But you don't obviously get to see much of it. Because it's not yeah. Much. But Checkpoint Charlie was past there, which was actually quite quite moving, actually. Yeah. I'm sure it was. Germans, they organize everything really well. I mean, I've done the Rennsteig Lauf, which is another 80k race in the Thuringian Mountains. That's a point to point race. Mm. Also, very well organized. Their technology yeah. and their organizing of races goes hand in hand. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I've got to be careful because I've got a German girlfriend as well. So, <laughs> the, darling, you're very organized. <laughs> Do the, do the runners at the Berlin Wall race, do they, they stop and, and pay tribute to any memorial plaques along the way? Is there stuff like that? Or They are, yeah. There are some yeah. plaques along the way. Yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah. But that, that's, I, I just love, I'm a history buff, so I think that would be definitely yeah. one I would try to get to, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, the good thing is you can actually have your pacer on a bicycle as well. Oh, and, wow. You know, the good news is um, you can actually run it without even a hydro pack on so oh. basically they do allow muling which is very oh important. okay but you don't actually have to run with a pack on because your pacer can actually be on a bike beside you oh, the awesome. up because it's all pretty much paved right there's no trail bits at all actually on that and um apart from sort of little trails along the sort of lakes there that run through hmm. the center of berlin so it's really quite a beautiful race actually hmm. Listen, Norm, don't ask me don't ask me to pace you on a bike because I think I'd rather run a hundred <laughs> miles than bike a hundred miles. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> and what what month is this race? I think it's usually in let me just think. I think it's about October actually. No, sorry, oh. August. 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 Oh, okay. uh, August twenty fifteen is when I did it. August. Yeah. Okay. Lovely. So the weather's pretty good. Yeah. No. Oh, nice. It's too cold. Yeah. Yeah. Months to run there. Another one that popped up on your results that I have to admit neither one of us had heard of, but it has a really unique story behind it, is the Eco Trail Paris 80K. Okay. Um, which I'm just going to mention for our listeners, it's a series that was started in 2007 in Paris, uh, which the purpose was to allow runners to discover a city while respecting the environment. It's since grown to about 13 cities around the world. And mm. you've done Paris more than I've once, done, I believe? Yeah, I've done Paris uh, about four times and okay. the Brussels one as well. I haven't done any of the other ones, but they've got them all over the world. They've got one in Madeira, Norway, 
Portugal sort of uh, these little places and uh, yeah, it's so very us. well organized. Yeah. Tell us about that because it I understand it's mostly urban trails mm. and pavement. Well, the Eco Trail is great because you start sort of 80 kilometers outside Paris and you get the train out there first thing in the morning. I got the train from near where the Eiffel Tower was. Imagine that the expo is right by the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> yeah, believe then. it. <laughs> you know, it's an amazing, you know, iconic sort of place, as you obviously know. Yeah. And you get on that train and off you head to the sort of like lovely rural area outside Paris. And it's sort of a mass start. And they've got different distances that start at different times and everything. And obviously, I was doing the 80K. Mm-hmm. Started in a big park. And there was some sort of circus going on quite close by us. It was all quite cryptic. But it was very, very interesting to watch <laughs> at the same time. And then you run sort of through these lovely forests, basically, all the way through, um, probably for about 50 kilometers. Hmm. And then you eventually start getting to suburbia on the suburban outskirts of Paris. I think the most um, alarming time I ever did it was, I think, in 2016. And I was running along and I was doing pretty well. I was in sort of about 40th or something in the, in the overall standings. And we did get some pretty good runners in, in that from different parts of the world, including people training for things like UTMB, obviously just getting their speed base up. Right. So um, at about 52 kilometers into the race, I was herring down this quite big slope, vertiginous slope managed to catch a sort of a tree trunk trunk standing out of the ground and it went flying you know and sort of landed on my right shoulder and then of course I stood up knew something was wrong and then I could I put my hand to where my shoulder was and couldn't actually feel that I the oh, shoulder oh, the whole, no. so of course the, the whole shoulder had popped right out and my arm was sort of right back behind my back it's like, oh. Oh, I think I've got a bit of an injury here <laughs> And obviously, I was just wearing this sort of tight-fitting skins top and some sort of um, shorts, and it was quite a cold day. It was about five degrees with a sort of a, quite a, a strong headwind. So it brought the with the wind chill. It was down to about zero. Ooh. So I was really disappointed because I was sitting quite well, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to grin and bear it, and off I go and try and sort of carry on. But obviously, I was starting to shiver, and then the shock takes over. Yeah, I managed to find my way to this little town in the middle of God knows where, and then uh, got into a doctor's surgery. God knows how I found it, but I found a doctor's <laughs> surgery. Wow! Managed to persuade these people. I was covered in mud, and you know, arm hanging back to go to the front of the queue, as you do. Yeah. And there was a diminutive little French lady doctor, and I sort of tried to, in broken French, ask her if she could put my arm over the back of an armchair that she had in the waiting room. Oh. And sort of pull the, the shoulder and get it back in again, you know, so I could carry on, you know, with the race. Yeah, <laughs> yeah of course. As, as you do, of course. You don't want to give up at that point, do you? you know, no. Even if you come last. I think know. this is where Killian got the idea at Hard Rock, right? He saw, <laughs> he read your blog, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, actually. But he's so tough, he would run with his arm wherever it was anyway, old Killian. <laughs> anyway, so long story short, didn't manage to get them to do it. Then they called the ambulance and they couldn't do it either because I was flinching and wincing as you do, you know, while they were trying to hoik it perpendicularly. So eventually I got chucked into the back of the, the ambulance and taken to Versailles Hospital. Oh. And of course, then they said, okay, we're going to have to anesthetize you and then we'll keep you in overnight. So they cut the skin's top off with a pair of surgical scissors. Ouch. And gave me the old anesthetic. And then, of course, um, I, I, I got the arm put back in, woke up, 
there was a lovely French nurse standing over me, so immediately I felt better. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, at the time, I was I was there with my um, my then wife Melanie, who who didn't know what had happened to me. Yes, I'd broken my leg or something. She so didn't know, and the race director didn't know, and I'd just been summoned off to hospital, so she didn't know anything. Couldn't oh, get God. the mobile phone working. Didn't have any money on me. Ideally, you know, great situation to be in. Yeah. Couldn't even phone her. And then the next day, they actually took me back in a in a taxi, which I managed to hail. And I said, I'll pay them when I get back to the B&B. Mm -hmm. So I got back there, sort of dressed in this green surgical gown, as you do, you know, <laughs> and said, hi, Mel. And she said, gee, where have you been? And I said, well, I spent last night in hospital, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. Back in again, as you do. So, Gosh. Did you finish? And she said, yeah. Oh, blimey, oh, I'm jealous now. <laughs> oh, was she racing as well? Yeah, she finished, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was not good, actually, but hats off to her. Oh, my gosh. Poor woman. She she didn't call the guard on you to find out what happened? Yeah. Or... No, not quite, actually. No rescue helicopters on that occasion. Wow. <laughs> anyway. That's a great story. That is a great story. Listen, I've dislocated my knee, so I know exactly the kind of pain you're talking about. It's the most yeah. pain I've ever been in in my life. Yeah. During a race. No, actually, a dog came up and hit me from oh, behind, okay. just in the right spot, and my kneecap was on the outside of my knee. It was oh, awful. Good. Yeah. <laughs> but I can't imagine it happening during a race. So. No, not good. <laughs> but I'm, I'm assuming you redeemed yourself. You did go back did, and finish. I went back the year after. And actually, <laughs> I did seven hours, 12 minutes, so I won my age group. I'm nice. Like, but an old chicken now. I'm 55 now, so I was about I don't know about 46, 47 or something when I when I won my age cat. So and, I was quite pleased. And yeah. you know the you know the spot where you did fall. Yeah, and you I went by cautious and on that pitch, tribute yeah. to that spot. <laughs> I was going there with my uh, sort of angle grinder to get rid of that piece of wood. Yeah, just about. <laughs> don't blame you. Because <laughs> <laughs> every time I do fall in a race, I look back going, "What was it?" <laughs> Yeah, there's nothing there to fall on. I don't I know. know. <laughs> That's the biggest twig that you can find. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, my that. gosh. Wow. That's a good one. <laughs> well, we're going to definitely do that one, too, right? Yeah. I re That's definitely on my list now. Yeah. I don't know about the 80K, but maybe the, the shorter distance, because I'd like to do multiple cities. It sounds like such a mm. great series. It's a beautiful and well-organized event. I mean, the Eco Trail is the flagship of all the Eco Trail races. And the one in Brussels is very nice too, actually. Yeah. But uh, those are the only two I've done. I think the one in Madeira is quite tough. It sort of emulates the mutt. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Madeira Ultra Trail type thing. Yeah. It's actually quite a toughie. But obviously the scenery in Madeira is very scenic. And then they've got one in Sweden as well and one in Iceland. Yeah. So they've got, you, you can take your pick of pick of the crop, really. Yeah. I, I think I noticed Porto, uh, Portugal, mm. which I thought Perfect. would be beautiful because it's such mm. a beautiful city so yeah let's get that well, on the is great because you can drink port afterwards because that's where <laughs> there you go. If you're a port drinking lady you'll be in your element there <laughs> <laughs> every every time we do a chat on a podcast our bucket list gets bigger Long. and bigger yeah, longer and sure it does. Yeah. <laughs> so many races in the world i know i know if you like what you're hearing so far then check this out does running around in circles sound like fun to you? No vert? No problem. Well then Gotta Run Racing has the perfect race for you. Coming to Shelburne, Ontario this June is the Fiddle 50. 
featuring distances starting at 25K all the way to 100 miles and almost everything in between. It's flat, fast, and fun all rolled into one. And as the name implies, you may even hear a fiddle or two. And they may or may not be on a roof. Registration's now open. For more info, go to gotterunracing.com. Now, back to the show. Another race that piqued their interest, the Daytona 100. Okay, yeah. That's uh, point to point. Mm. No aid stations, is that right? You're self-supported? Yeah, no, they did have aid stations at the Daytona, actually. Oh, it did was, they? Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, they had um, the uh, race director of Badwater there, Chris yeah. Cosman, is okay. he was a, is a friend of the, the former race director. He was mm. organizing it. And then they had Bob Becker there as well, manning an aid station, oh, who fun. does uh, the Keys 100. Yes. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, the Daytona 100 was actually a very, very good point to point race because it finishes right by the North Circuit where they used to do sort of racing and on Daytona Beach itself. I'd, I'd actually hired a Mustang um, in Orlando, as you do. Because <laughs> an old broken down car in America where you've got cheap, cheap gas. You know? Yes, yes. I, I think I'm going to go, go for it. And you go and run 100 miles in America, you take the best car you can, you know, <laughs> a convertible Mustang. Lovely. Just with a couple of mates of mine, Ken Fancet and Pete Johnson, both from Centurion Running, who've all said, and multitudinous 100 milers, quite experienced runners. And we all bailed into the sort of Mustang and drove to Daytona Beach and drove on the beach because oh, you can sweet. drive the highlight. Yeah. So, yeah. And this was a road race, though, right? No, no trails. It's a road race, yeah. It was just after that had a big sort of hurricane. So there was still debris on the course from the hurricane, the aftermath of the hurricane. So some of the course had to be diverted. So we ended up doing quite a lot of stretches on the beach, actually, which made Mm. it even challenging. So I was doing pretty well up until 50 miles, and then I faded a bit and ended up uh, struggling a bit in the next 50, as you do, going out too fast, you know. (laughs) Was it was it hot that day? Yeah, it was quite warm actually. Yeah, it was 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 a pretty warm day. Not anything draconian. I think about twenty degrees or something. Oh. But it can get a little bit humid really. So I think I took quite a beating in the second half of the race. No doubt. It took forever, but I loved it. And it's definitely one of those races that you can do without sort of worrying about. Well, in my situation, getting lost wasn't an issue. It was very well marked, when I, <laughs> which is also very good. I tend to pick these races that I can generally run without having too much navigational issues. Which well, is, uh, well, well, since you've mentioned it twice now, I feel like we need to ask you, what, what's your best getting lost in a race story? <laughs> mm, well, that would have to be the Headlands 100 that I did. Okay. So, uh, yeah, Headlands in San Francisco is another great race. But you do two laps of a 50-mile circuit, and it's very undulating. You know, mm-hmm. So the second lap would be pretty much running in the dark. And when I ran it, as, as you probably well know, San Francisco is notoriously bad for its um, fog. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, we started in, in the morning, having slept in a, in a little B&B, Airbnb in San Fran the night before, me and these two other guys, also Pete and Ken. Okay. The guys that came out to do Daytona were there as well. Yeah. Didn't sleep too well and then have to get a taxi the next day to go across the San Francisco Bridge to the Headlands, which yes. is where the race started. And it was foggy as anything. You couldn't even see your hand. 
Uh, oh, geez, this is going to be a fun day. Make sure you don't run too close to the edge of that cliff then. Huh? You know? <laughs> <laughs> It'd be your last race. But anyway, so you've got your head torch on, and I don't know if you've ever run in fog with a head torch on, but it just rebounds yeah. straight off the mm, fog. Of course, yeah. You know, there's no visibility if you've got a head torch in just a fog field in front of you. So I realized shortly, shortly after starting that that wasn't going to work. So I actually put my – I didn't actually have a – one of those waste torches which i've now got like the ultra spire yes lumen bad boy which yep. is an absolute beast of a, of a head torch so I, I used my normal head torch but managed to strap it around my waist okay because the beam field then cuts through the actual fog so i managed to see a little bit better you know <laughs> otherwise it would have been like going to spec savers we've got a glass shop here called spec savers and you'd be walking around like a mole you know <laughs> um Long story short, managed to do the first 85 miles of quite doing quite well. I was in the lead, basically. And then this race director, I couldn't remember his name, but anyway, the race director decided oh, he was going to find me a lovely pacer. So I thought, okay, that sounds good. It'd be nice to have a bit of company for the last 15 miles. Produces this most voluptuous blonde girl. And she was like a Lara Croft, you know, she was absolutely stunning. You know, she was like, <laughs> like a model. And she was dressed in sort of little pink running shoes with a pink sort of lycra bottom and crop top and everything. And I thought, <laughs> how am I going to concentrate on the running now? <laughs> so off, off we go, you know, and she's got a little bottle of water in her hand. And off we go. We started chatting to each other, as you do. And then I completely lost concentration, missed a turning point. So, of course, I ended up going off and did a complete loop and did about a three-mile loop and ended up where I'd started. Oh, no. So you were I following said, her, so she did the same thing? Yeah, we, we ended up getting completely lost. <laughs> so I sort of didn't want to blame her, but I thought, you know what, my concentration is going to be better if I don't have her by my side. So I said, to her, with all due respect, my dear, I'm going to have to let you go. <laughs> Very reluctant. But she, she got back anyway to where we'd left that checkpoint, and off I went again. But I'd already dropped about four places by then, you know, so oh. I was finishing about ninth, just ahead of Dean Carnese's, which was oh, nice. you know, came to fame. I think he came in 10th and we were all sub-24. That's so his he, backyard, too. That's his backyard, yeah. 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 Dean on a number of occasions. and uh, Great guy, uh, eh? Great guy, yeah. yeah. And what yeah. a great runner. Gee. Such so an ambassador quite, uh, for the sport. Yeah, he is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that, yeah. that was quite epic, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in more ways than one. <laughs> we got to finish in under 24 hours. Otherwise, really would have gone home in tears, I think. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Badwater, in 2015, you're the only UK finisher. Go. <laughs> Tell us about Badwater. <laughs> oh, Badwater. I mean, obviously, just about every runner on the ultra runner on the planet's heard about the lovely Badwater. <laughs> But um, anyway, so the, the baptism of fire about doing bad water actually came the year before when I was actually running Marrakesh again because mm. Marrakesh Marathon's always been one of my most favourite African marathons. One of the reasons is it's in January and you get away from this horrible British winter that we've got yep. <laughs> and you get out to the lovely African sun in North Africa and you run a marathon through these sort of lovely sort of um, palm trees and past camels, whatever. Nice. Anyway, I was staying at a hotel in... Um, in Marrakesh at the time, and I met a Zimbabwean guy, because I'm originally born and bred there, a guy called Gary Mundell. And he he sort of, we struck up a harmonious rapport. And he said, have you done Marathon to Saab? And I said, no, I don't really like multi-day stage events, and I don't like carrying backpacks for 
kingdom come up and down sandwiches. So no, it's not on my bucket list. And he then he said, Well, what about bad water? And I said, Hmm, that sounds a bit hot. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know about that, actually. I mean, that's only for crazy people. Uh, Scott Urich and Dean Conesis, who can but then it sowed the seed in my head, and I thought, oh, okay, hmm, it might be worth doing, but you're going to have to do some serious heat training for that. Oh, you yeah. can't just rock up at Badwater and just think you've come you know, out of an igloo and actually expect to run through one of the hottest deserts in the world in July, <laughs> which is why it's called Badwater. And, um, yeah, so I ended up, I was quite lucky, though, because um, the year before I'd managed to win the Grand Slam, which is the Centurion Grand Slam, which is a series of 400 milers, which Paul went into detail about the last yes. part, you know, the um, Thames Path, um, the South Downs, the North Downs and the Autumn 100, mm-hmm. all lovely events, South Downs being the most epic of all four and one that I, I know he'd said that you guys yep. should probably do. <laughs> we well, yeah, it. I agree with him on that one because it's yes. my peak course for 100 miles, so of course I'm going to agree. But, uh, <laughs> Anyway, so, um, yeah, I'd won the Grand Slam. And, of course, as you probably know, you've got to sort of send in your CV, don't you, to Chris Cosman, yep. who rubber stamps, and they have a, a panel. Mm-hmm. And they get a couple of thousand of people sort of entering from four corners of the world and take 100 ultra runners every year to run bad water. If you've had a, a bad water finish, obviously, you've got a better chance of getting in. So I didn't think I'd have a cat's chance of getting in, really. So uh, I ent- entered the ballot and to the lottery and... And then I got the letter saying, you're in. I was like, really? Come on, you know, he must be having a laugh. <laughs> I've done a few hundreds, but that would, it was completely sort of never run that far in my life, 260 <laughs> kilometers. How am I going to do this? So I said to my then wife, Melanie, at the time, Mel, we've actually got a problem because bad water is the same weekend that Davos 78K was going to be, and we'd actually signed up to go to Davos, which is where I actually proposed to Mel. Oh, dear. We were going to go and celebrate our sort of anniversary there. Oh, dear. She was not best pleased, and she said, that's not great. <laughs> happy that you got into bad water, but the fact that it's the same weekend that we were going to go to Davos isn't such a good idea. Mm. A bit of a, hmm, well, I'm going to have to do it, love. You, know? <laughs> so you don't get many opportunities to run no. bad water, do you? Now? No. So, of course, my head was, um, I had the blinkers on and I decided, you know, come hell or high water, I was going to go and do it. So I started training religiously to, to do that. And one of the things I decided I would do is run in a wetsuit. So I became the sort of local village idiot. They would sort of be having their cup of tea first thing in the morning and watch some bloke go past the window, you know, in sort of full four mil wetsuit. <laughs> And think, oh my God, I must have had a few too many to drink the night before. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I'd run to the gym in my wetsuit, and then I'd do a couple of sauna sessions just to to acclimatise, because obviously I read quite a bit about how to to prepare for that. Yeah, get that right, and um, so that was the basis of bad water. Okay, and uh, then signed up for lots lo- for really nice hot marathons wherever I could, mm-hmm. uh, just to get the preparation, like Marrakesh and the rest of it. And then decided we had to get a crew together. So, of course, you uh, compulsorily have to get a, about five people together from wherever mm-hmm. to come and support you. And one has to be medically trained. So mm-hmm. I put a yeah. post up on the Badwater Facebook page just to see if I could actually plead with people out there to come and support me. And this lovely lady, Cinder Wolf, who will remain one of the greatest people who've ever supported me, was actually came to the party. And she's a sports physiotherapist in in Las Vegas. 
Okay. She had her own van. She helped Marshal Ulrich do bad oh, wow. so She knows what she's course, doing. You, know, you were in good hands. Yeah. yeah. You've got a woman like that by your side. You know? mm-hmm. And then um, I had a few other crew. One was from Texas, and, um, and then I had Gary from Zimbabwe and so on. So you're decided, all meeting for the first time on the in the race we're day. Meeting for the first time, yeah. Wow. Yeah. wow. Well, except for Gary, that was, yeah. yeah, yeah. But everyone else was from the U.S. and I'd never met them before, so of course it was quite uh, baptism yeah. of fire getting used to <laughs> having a crew you'd never met. Yeah, that could be dangerous. <laughs> it was, yeah, but it was fun too. And uh, we end up meeting up at the Stratosphere Hotel in Vegas, which is uh, okay. lovely iconic hotel, and. Uh, <laughs> And that is after me missing my flight out there initially. Oh, no. On the day before I was supposed to fly to Las Vegas, I decided to have one more heat training session. So I ran to the gym in my wetsuit, had a sauna session, then ran back, got ready to get to the to Heathrow Airport. And I'd sort of left it a bit late. So I got the bus to the airport. The bus was late. But eventually got there and couldn't check in my suitcase because they'd actually closed the oh, no. location. So yep. I thought, oh my goodness, there's no way I could do anything. I, I was flying on, I can't remember which airline, but had to go back home and get a flight the next day, which oh. cost me a new packet. You know? mm, I Jeez. can imagine. Yeah. You're not even in the race yet. You're just trying to get there. Not even in the race, but the, the marathon had started before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That was all quite interesting. Yeah. But uh, finally got there and then met all the crew, and we all really struck it off really well, got on really well. Did some lovely training runs prior to Bad Water in Red Rock Canyon. Mm. And that is beautiful, you know, sort of a little place just outside Vegas, you know, just right. to, to get acclimatized. And the temperature at that point was about 110 Fahrenheit. So, gee, this is going to be tough. Yeah. Fahrenheit, Celsius. Fahrenheit, yeah, 110 right. Fahrenheit. It was about 40, oh, what's that, 44 Fahrenheit. Celsius. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So how did the uh, race go? So the race went, went really well. I was lucky enough to start with the elites, which is at 11 o'clock. So Valme Nunes was their previous winner of Badwater. Pam um, Reed. Pam Reed. She was standing next to me. Yeah. <laughs> and Pete Kostelnik was there. Wow. Uh, who went on to win the race. Um, mm-hmm. went. Valme pulled out. But, uh, you know, meeting all these legends, just like there I, I was standing cheek by jowl, you know, thinking, what am I doing here? You know, <laughs> like, amazing. So, uh, and of course, they have a little pre race briefing where they tell you all the rules that you've got to follow. And they've got a Bible that thick different rules that you've got to comply with. Mm-hmm. No pacer is allowed to run in front of you. They've got to run the pace got about behind you. You know, if you've got to do a, a call of nature, you've got to make sure you're uh, off the road so mm-hmm. no one can see you, carry it in a plastic bag back to your van. You can imagine the stench there, you know. So <laughs> all these things that you've got to try and remember, though. Obviously, yeah. if you've got a good crew, it helped. It didn't go all to plan, though, to be honest. I started off really well. I got to Stovepipe Wells about 54 miles in or something the next morning as the sun was coming up. Mm-hmm. realized it was going to be a really hot day because it was 115 Fahrenheit then. Oh. And I was wearing hockers, hocker Clifton's, and you could actually feel the actual heat from the road emanating yeah. through your shoes. And you, and you have a sort of tourniquet around your neck, ice cubes in it to keep the carotid artery at the base of your neck nice and cool. Yeah. You know, and a cap on. I mean, wearing long trousers and things like that didn't make much sense because you're going to get burnt anyway. Yeah. So I'd 
have all that. But I had long sleeves. I had a sort of a long sleeve white top. Mm -hmm. You know, so you look like you're actually just come out of a science lab, actually, <laughs> running through Death Valley. So. <laughs> and then you get as far as Panama Springs where these tornadoes go overhead. And that's just the most moving thing. Got an Air Force base there. And they, they fly these tornadoes oh, through wow. Death Valley as, as a testing ground. Mm. You're sort of running along this blooming huge motorway right through the middle of the Mohawk Desert and suddenly a tornado flies over your head. That's sort of <laughs> cool. wake-up call. It's really yeah. cool. Yeah. <laughs> but still constantly hot. I mean, the, the heat never abates in Death Valley at that time of the year. Panama yeah. Springs, I was on my uppers and they put me in one of these little toddler's bathing pools because my crew had bought a little bathing pool which they filled yeah. up with water. Oh, smart. You put you in that and you sort of immerse yourself fully and get your core body temperature right down again. Yeah. Which really helped. But the other thing that's difficult is eating. So obviously mm. your body's working over time to get oxygenated by pumping through your body. Yeah. And you're running in ridiculously high temperatures of 40 plus degrees Celsius, above 100, 100 Fahrenheit all day and most of the night. And it's really difficult to keep food down, you know. Mm -hmm. So I ended up eating quite a bit of like pureed baby food. Yes. Yeah, from Walmart, things like that. And there's little Twinkies cupcakes. <laughs> you've just got to be so diverse with your culinary delights. You've got to have a sort of an eating fest for about 36 hours, which is yeah. what it took me to do this. And you never practiced this before, this type of food. And you never practice it, no. No. Things like rice pudding and little bits, little those little fruit tubs that you get at your big Walmarts. Yeah. They're absolutely idyllic. And for, fortunately for me, Cinder Wolf, my chief crew, she had bought all that with, because I was thinking of I would be eating steak and chips, you know. Steak <laughs> <laughs> and chips, a bottle of wine. Of course Here you I did. Do that. <laughs> Fish and chips. Fish and chips would be good, yeah. What uh, was your recovery like after that race, having been in that heat? Because I can imagine it really messed with your levels. Well, when I got to Lone Pine, which was the 121-mile mark, I was mm -hmm. really on my, completely falling asleep on my feet. I was mm. hallucinating. I was seeing sort of large dinosaurs in front of me and lampposts yeah. turned upside down. Never no, hallucinated. They were, they were really there. Yeah, they definitely were. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even have to be in Loch Ness, actually. See, Nessie, I was actually in the middle of the Mohawk Desert. And there, there was, you know, wondering where it had been all this time. So, um, Jake's decided I'd never hallucinated, so that was a new thing for me. And um, fortunately, with bad water, if you don't go off the course, you're actually allowed to sleep. So I slept in the hotel, which we'd actually pre-booked the Lone Pine Hotel for about four hours and then had to get up like Lazarus, you know, with a sort of dodgy leg, you know, sort of wobbling on, all, on my legs and then carry on and do the last push, which is up Mount Whitney to the top of Mount yeah. Whitney. Such oh. a cruel finish. Oh, that, that's the most cruel finish of every, any race I've ever done. You know, 13 miles of sheer climb right up to the top of Mount Whitney Quartals. You've got to have a laugh. You know, whoever designed that course was a, a sadomasochist. <laughs> but yeah, what an epic race it is, though. You know, and um, I'm so pleased that I had the privilege of actually being able to complete it. Yeah. 36 hours, 18 minutes. But the recovery afterwards did take time. I'm sure it did. That I'm everything sure it did. psychologically was spent for some weeks or months afterwards. Did yeah. you did you stick around for a while, or did you, or did you get the plane back home? Like, I stuck around for a while and then went back to Vegas and uh, 
Yeah, with some mixed martial arts and uh, <laughs> that sort of stayed and uh, drank lots of beer as you do at the Stratosphere Hotel and <laughs> up and down the strip and had a bit of a party afterwards with the crew. Awesome. So, yeah. That was really good. Sounds like a great time. <laughs> uh, really was. Yeah. And that was part one with our chat with David Ross. We had so much to talk about, we had to make two parts. Be sure to check out next week's episode of part two where we talk to him about Comrades, Western States, Badwater, Leadville, and so much more. We are your hosts, Jody and Norman. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Please visit our website, gotterunracing.com, for more details and join us on social media at Racing on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can support our channel by joining us on Patreon. All of the links can be found in the show notes. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Cheers.